Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. Can you hear me? There you go. Hey guys, how are you going? Good, good, good. In the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Um, so yeah, I understand that this is a, now a new book. We're doing one Peter. Now, um, just we'll talk a little bit about a bit of context. I think um, I don't like reading a book if I don't know much about what is happening at the time. And it makes a lot more sense when we have a bit of an idea about it. So, <clears throat> the, the theme of this particular book is, I guess at least chapter one, is a lot of, a lot of it is about suffering. Um, and I think this is one of those books where maybe I'll ask a few questions. Maybe it might resonate something with you. Um, and maybe this can help in terms of like um, our understanding of how we can approach Peter. And I by no means have all the answers and I actually rather will ask questions maybe in fact because I don't really know half of the stuff that's going through here. Um, but maybe some questions. Have you ever felt crushed? Ever felt overwhelmed? Devastated? Exhausted? Tired? I think I'm a yes to most of them if not all. And I think if you felt yes or felt like there was something positive about any of those, um, a yes to any of those questions, this will be a helpful book for you. Suffering, we know, comes in many forms. Physical, emotional, religious. We see it in many settings. We see it at work. We see it with our friends. We see it with uni. We see it sometimes even in our own families in church. Um, some people experience it. And sometimes it's very easy to just throw in the flag, the white flag, and you know, raise it up, to you know, surrender. It's very tempting at times to just give up. And so this is the book for you to read. This is the book to really try, digest, and, and delve into, as Gia mentioned, a more of a practical book. Now, the author of the book, as it may suggest, is Simon Peter. Um, so a little bit about Simon Peter. He was one of the disciples of Christ. He's in the inner circle with Jesus, right? So James, John, and Peter, they're like the three musketeers, and they hang out with Christ, and they know the ins and outs of everything that's happening with Christ, okay? Now, you, as you may or may not remember, Peter is probably, to label him in terms of like characteristics, at least when we meet him in the Gospels, he's quite impulsive, he's bold. Um, he denies Christ, as you all know, but he's also the first to identify him as the Messiah. Peter is all or nothing. He's very black or white. And he's all for it at times. He's like, God, don't just want, you know, Christ, don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. And then, you know, moments later, he's denying Christ. So he's like a very bold, you know, the way that I'd see it, I think he's someone who puts his heart on his sleeve. You, you know, you know what Peter is thinking. He's the guy that's speaking out when everyone else is embarrassed and hushing. 
when people don't know what Christ means, Peter will be like, no, nah, no, nah, I don't I need to understand. I, I, can't, I can't continue Christ until you start explaining what this parable means. This is the Peter that we know. But this, actually, the book that, you know, even though it's the same author, the book is written many years later. What we're seeing when we read this book is a much more mature Peter. You know, he's got a lot more experience. This is a book where it's not a theological lesson. This is actually a book written out of his own experience. We're seeing a more, I don't know, if one may say, like Agur's Peter. Like he's like, let me speak to you, my children, type of Peter. I've lived the hard life. I've been silly and been impulsive in certain things. But let me sit with you and actually tell you the things that I've learned. Now, who is it written to? It's written to the Jewish Christians driven all out of Jerusalem. Um, and basically, and we'll read it in um, one of the first few verses, it's labeled as Asia Minor. Now, Asia Minor to us can sometimes feel a bit foreign. We don't really understand what that means. If anyone knows where Turkey is right now, that's kind of the area. Um, and at the time, as you may remember, Rome was kind of the big stronghold in terms of geographical, um, political powerhouse. Um, and Asia Minor was just east to it, essentially. And so basically the Jews had separated um, and scattered throughout the nations. And so he's writing it particularly to them. Um, it was written approximately in the early 60s AD. So we know Christ, you know, on the cross around the 30-ish or so. And so about 30 or 40 years after. Most of the books of the New Testament are probably around this period, actually. For the first at least 10 to 20 years after Christ, there isn't much that's written. Everything is like word of mouth, sermons, um, you know, in big groups and thingy, in big groups like, you know, uh, where, you know, like thousands are sitting, thousands are listening to in like sermons, for example, like in Acts, like 3,000 and whatnot. Um, but we start to see letters starting to come out around the early 60s. Now, what was happening at the time? There was a guy, his name was Nero. Um, and this was basically the stronghold, the guy that was ruling over all of Rome. Okay, um, And we know that Peter writes from Rome. He actually refers to it at the end of the book as Babylon as well. And you know, for those who love the Old Testament will know that Babylon was often seen as the thing that kind of held back Israel. And so he likens Nero and um, the Romans the same way. Now Nero, like just, I don't mean to be a big history guy, but I think it's worthwhile understanding this part. Nero was important because he did a few things with um, diplomacy, trade, culture. But what he was quite famous for was being extravagant, particularly with like political buildings and like he would build amphitheaters and whatnot. Now, Rome was, uh, sorry, Nero was actually quite a polarizing figure. Um, what you may or may not know is that, um, have you ever heard, um, I don't know if you guys remember, you know there's a, back in the day there was a burning CD, maybe I'm showing my age, burning CD, it was called Nero. And that came off the idea of burning a CD. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it would actually burn the CD, right? And so there's a really, in, in Nero's ruling, there was about a week where all of Rome, or not all of Rome, part of Rome was on fire, absolute fire, right? And so it's said, so some people say that, you know, there's a lot of skepticism, Who, where did the fire come from? Why is this so, and, you know, why was it there and whatnot? Some people are saying that, you know, 
Um, back in the day, there was a lot of things that could have been quite flammable, and so it could have very easily just caught on fire, and that was it. But there's a lot of historical theorists at the time, um, sorry, who write and say that it was actually Nero himself that started this fire. Um, and it says here, Nero started the fire to clear the sites for his planned palatial golden house. He was extravagant. He wanted a really nice house, so he's kind of like, let's wipe this out. And so he wanted this you know, lush, artificial landscape, 30-meter-tall statue of himself. Um, and he basically wanted this entire extravagant building to live in. There's even a popular legend. This is how far the theory was and how much people believed it. That it was said that the legend is that Nero played the fiddle while Rome burned. Fiddle is almost like a flute. So he's like having fun, sitting back while he's watching Rome in fire, on fire. Now obviously everyone's attacking Nero saying, what the heck, like you're meant to be leading you know, all of Rome in this massive powerhouse and whatnot. And so to remove suspicion, what does Nero do? He starts accusing the Christians of starting the fire. Okay? So the Christians become the scapegoat in this. And so what he does is he uses Christians to light up the posts in the evening. And I mean that quite literally. Um, he literally burns them alive. And that's what he starts doing in retaliation. Um, you see Christians being arrested, brutally executed, being thrown to the beasts, they're crucified and being burnt alive. Now, I know I've done a very circular argument, but the reason I got to this is because Peter is writing to Christians in this environment. This is what's happening to Christians. Being burnt alive, they're being crucified, they're being, you know, being thrown to beasts, it's entertainment, they're getting not just physical persecution, but social persecution, you don't want to be associated with a Christian. Well, that's the last thing you want right now. You know it's going to be trouble. And can you imagine baptism at that time? Imagine that you know, you're trying to preach to someone and then they're going to get baptized. That is a death sentence. Like baptism at that time is a death sentence. Being a Christian was a death sentence. Things were not to be taken lightly. That is the seriousness and the environment in which the Christians lived in, what it meant to be a Christian at the time. You know, sometimes like us, we get like a bit, you know, a little bit of pressure, we're like, oh no, I can't handle this. No, 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 no. Like it's too much, too much, a little bit of pressure. Some guy, you know, was possibly discriminating, you know, towards us, say a discriminatory comment or something. He thought, you know, Coptics and Catholics are the same. This guy is, like, can't believe him, right? But this is real persecution, like real persecution, what these people are going through. So things were not to be taken lightly. Um, and the last sort of comment as a context part, I think, is it said it's been delivered by a guy called Silvanus. You'll read about him towards more of the end of the book. Um, and he's kind of a co-worker with Peter. And as you can imagine, the purpose of the book is to offer encouragement to suffering Christians, whether it be physical persecution, um, whether it be social, economic persecution, in whatever way. It's probably worthwhile to mention just one or two last points just before we get into the book itself. At the time, Christianity was in this sort of 
unclear territory. People knew that they were religious, but the Jews started to realize that they're not part of us. And so Christianity was kind of attached to being to the Jews but and the Jewish sort of law and the way that they ruled. But at the same time, they were developing their own identity. And so Christians at the time kind of weren't super comfortable being in their own arena. Being a Christian itself was like still, they were still learning the ropes. Being a Jewish, you know, they very comfortable with the Torah and everything. But being a Christian was still an unfamiliar territory. And so there was not a clean, like people thought it was an extension of the Jewish sect to be a Christian. So that fine line of drawing them to someone who is not involved with Jewish law or Christianity itself, they were seen as the same. They're just religious people, you know, following a God of whatever form. Now, um, and, and if a Christian didn't worship the Roman worship, they were punished by authorities. And we see that with Saul and Stephen. The other thing is that under Roman law, the head of the household had absolute authority over all its members. So, unless the ruling male became a Christian, the wife, children, and the servants who were believers might as well face extreme hardship. Basically, if you had um, a family, so say the women or the women or the children following a different rule, and the, f the man of the house was following it, you know, was Roman, for example, everyone else had to be Roman. That was kind of the rule. And so even internally, there was persecution within the family themselves, not just from external pressures. There was internal pressures happening as well. Um, and I guess a nice sort of wrap-up to the theme is this is a letter, a message of hope. Okay? And I think all of us in this day and age need hope. We struggle for hope. We lack hope. We sometimes are so clouded and we lose focus of what is right, what is true, what Christ has always destined from us the message and, and the potential that he's created for us. And we often are confused because the world confuses it with us. The world confuses that for us, sorry. And so this message is a, trying to kind of um, place things into reality, just as they are. A message of hope. Okay, so is there a way we can get someone to read? Maybe, do we have, can we pass it? Yeah. So maybe we'll start with chapter one then. Um, and I think we'll read it in its entirety. Geovolunteered. Um, we'll read it in its entirety, and then after that we'll just break it down briefly. It's not too long, it's not too long. Chapter one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation 
ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what matter of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the, the, the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope, rest your hopefully, hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partially judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which is by the gospel was preached to you. Thank you so much for that. Um, so I'll just maybe try to break it up a little bit um, and we'll take it sort of every few verses together. So in verse 1 it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Um, what is an apostle? An apostle purely means someone who is sent, um, a messenger, someone specifically who is sent. And we see this as sometimes St. Paul, I mean, we often, I guess, the one that we often see in terms of introductions, the way that St. Paul does it. This can be sometimes similar. Sometimes St. Paul does the whole bond servant thing. Um, St. Peter 
doesn't in this case. He says he's, he's an apostle. Um, so he's someone who is sent. And so I guess the first question is, is this something that you think and you believe you are also sent to be as St. Peter is? Are you also an apostle? Are you also someone who is sent? Someone who is to deliver a message? Someone who you know, has a role for God in that way? And then it continues. To the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, and I think, obviously, as we mentioned, this is kind of overall, overarching sort of um, label. This is like Asia Minor. Um, and it's obviously, as we can see, it's who it's written to. But a lovely word that is actually said, it's the pilgrims. And pilgrims suggest this idea that we are strangers in society. These guys were strangers in society. And that is a thing that St. Peter, from the very beginning as a letter, is trying to communicate to them. You guys are suffering. I know you're going through hell. I know physically things are tough. But remember, you are a stranger here. You, this isn't your main, this isn't where you're going to stay long term. You can kind of, you know, it's like the fifth or sixth word in, or, you know, or so, ten words in, and you can already begin to see where St. Peter is going to take this message. Um, and so I guess the same thing is for us. This is a temporary place for us. We are pilgrims on this earth as well. Um, are we any different to them in that way? Verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. What I love is um, elect. And I think what it suggests, it should give us reassurance that the people... Um, the Jews who are outside in Asia Minor and whatnot and scattered abroad, they are elect. But I don't think it's of anything that they have done in of themselves. Just as we are also elect. And despite all the suffering and the struggles and the hardships that we go through, we are elect. Like, God has chosen you and me. We are actually elect which is incredible. It's an incredible thing. We are elect. And I think we, like, I really believe we forget that. I don't think we, we actually understand what that means. Like, God, who knows everything, who's powerful, who's so incredible in everything that He does and who He is, has chosen you, has chosen me. We are elect. That's not something to be like lightly taken in my opinion um, and I think that's something that we should always carry with us in any struggle any temptation any trial first thing when we face it and we're like oh, I can't believe what's happening this this sucks it's the worst whatever it is I am elect by him like I am elect that's a powerful thing that's like armor for me um, and I think it's a really beautiful thing the image of sprinkling of blood is a common Old Testament thing, idea that the Jews would have had. Sprinkling of blood was known in sacrifices. So when you had a burnt offering, there are you know, all these different sacrifices that Moses covers in Leviticus, four or five, five of them, sorry. And sprinkling of blood was actually sacrifice. But it wasn't just that. Sometimes what it was also, it was actually a sealing of a covenant. 
Sprinkling of blood was a sealing of, coven, of a covenant, of a promise. And this promise that Christ has died for us is that sealing of a covenant. And so when St. Peter writes, he's painting the same image that they would also know. Um, there is greater things is the bottom line here. And just before I leave this part, one absolutely lovely thing that we can't forget is St. Peter has already started, if you have not realized, with a Trinitarian prayer. You've got the mention of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. Everything in our faith, especially as, as Orthodoxy, we take absolute pride in that every prayer is introduced and sealed in the Trinity. The sign of the cross, the Lord's Prayer, we see it everywhere. The church, being the body of Christ, are in the Son who gives thanks, or he blesses in, and he blesses in his presence, and he's sanctified. And we say this even when Obuna is holding the Urbana, um, for example, in the Eucharist. He gave thanks, he blessed it, he sanctified it. That's a Trinitarian prayer right there. Our church is founded on the Trinitarian prayer. Um, in Ephesians 1.4, the Father chose us before we were born. In Romans 5, 6, Jesus dies for our Christ whilst we were sinners. In, in 2 Thessalonians 2, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit brings us salvation and sets us apart or sanctifies us. And so, um, just before we leave verse 2, a really nice thing for us is, do we pray in a Trinitarian way? Do I pray and mention the Father? Do I talk about the Son in, in the Spirit, uh, through the Holy Spirit? by the Father, in the Son, through the Holy Spirit. That lovely prayer. I think often, if I'm going to be honest, often our praise is either to the Father or to Jesus. Sometimes, thank you, thank you Christ for dying on the cross for us. And I think the Holy Spirit gets a bad rap and is often forgotten. And I think maybe this is a good opportunity for us to like, try to acknowledge him as well in his incredible works that he's doing, especially in, um, in, in, uh, you know, in, in everything with the Pentecost in our season. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The first word blessed is praise, praise to God. And this is the most beautiful way that we should also take on board when we are speaking to God, praising him at all times, blessing him and doing and you know, and like praise often is a word that can be hard to understand. One, um, pre-servants teacher once explained it to me, just describing God's characteristics. God, you are so amazing, you are so incredible. You transcend any understanding of love. You are all-powerful. You are, you are everything. That's praise. And we have a perfect example of that in Tazbaha. Um, so if anyone's struggling for, to find a way to praise, just go to Tazbaha and you'll find out exactly how our church uses praise. Um, now, and then we get to this word of begotten, and we struggle sometimes with this word because we don't really understand it sometimes. But I think let me replace it with born, um, as, with the words born. So he has born us again to a living hope. And that's really the crux of St. Peter's message. He's trying to remind us that we are born into a new family, a new identity, a new hope. And it's actually Christ's mercy is what saves us and gives us this living hope. Um, he calls us into a living hope of eternal life. No matter what pain or trial we face, we know it is not our final experience because it's transient, as we said. 
and eventually he says its inheritance incorruptible and it does not fade away and we know that that can only be God himself what is this all about salvation Christ comes and gives us this opportunity through his mercy to basically partake of him be part of him salvation um, to an incorruptible and undefiled and it does not fade away and it's reserved for us um, what is this inheritance it is him himself it is God himself okay um, and so I think verse when I read it verse 3 to 5 is kind of like so jam-packed I feel like st. Paul spoke about this in many chapters but st. Peter's kind of like no 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 I need to get to like real meat here I need to like really sort and give you a message for you so I feel like verse 6 to the end of the chapter is where is what st. Peter has been itching to say he's been itching to tell the suffering Christians this message and so he says in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while if need be you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ I think I'll stop there because it gets it's so jam-packed St. Peter he just he's not holding back as much info and imagery he'll put into these sentences I felt um, and so as mentioned why were the Christians being persecuted they refused to worship the Emperor they refused to worship them particularly as gods um, they refused to partake of the heathen temples and they were being blamed as well for all this disaster and the fire in, in Rome as well um, and so we see right here St. Peter's painting this really strange image and we hear about it in our church and the image is basically suffering and persecution is a gift suffering and persecution is a gift like what is that that sounds so foreign no one in this if you spoke to anyone outside of a Christian faith would call us crazy almost how can suffering be considered a gift this doesn't make sense St. Peter would probably answer a question like this by saying it burns away the false hopes like a purifying fire and reminds us of our true home of hope and paradoxically it's life's hardship that actually deepens our faith and so the image that kind of comes up here is when gold is heated its impurities float to the top the things that you don't like start to come up what is left is a more pure gold a similar imagery that we see in other parts um, of the Bible um, in Malachi 3 some of you guys may or may not be familiar but there's a particular verse where it says that the silversmith, um, the silver maker will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And what that really means is that the person, the blacksmith, who is actually purifying and trying to make the steel as pure as it can be, will sit there for hours and hours and hours trying to make the steel pretty much look perfect. And if you asked a blacksmith or a silver or, you know, someone who makes this how do you know when it's done how do you know when it's perfect how do you know that it's not too much not too little 
And the answer would be, it's when I can see my own image. It's when I can see my own reflection. And so taking these analogies, you can begin to see who is it that's actually purifying the gold or the silver or the steel or whatever metal it is. It's Christ himself, it's God. And God has us as the metal trying to make something not just great, something extravagant from us. And what this can be labeled as is suffering. Because it hurts sometimes right now. It's like when, you know, there's a nasty looking skin lesion. You go to a doctor and the surgeon's like, I need to cut it out. And off you go, you get all these stitches and cuts. And what can be, what can be thought of is very invasive, gruesome and painful. And it is. The patient comes out really upset in pain. And he's got clear evidence that, you know, a surgeon was he and all these kinds of things. But it's to prevent, for example, a cancer, something that's even worse. And it's to make them as best as they can. And so the same sort of idea is applied. Um, and that is how St. Peter is speaking to these people and by extension to us. Suffering is a gift and the church fathers will go on to an extent by saying, if you avoid an opportunity to suffer or be put under trial, if you are trying to like wriggle your way through, you're avoiding an opportunity to get closer to him. And you're like, whoa, how? So you're telling me I need to have to hear what my boss is telling me and all the stuff that he's saying, which doesn't make any sense, and he's talking, I don't know. To, you know, it's toxic about my faith, my religion. I have to hear and endure these friends who are so mean to me and, you know, they can't stop talking smack about me. I just should, like, just sit through it. Is that what you're telling me, St. Peter? And I think St. Peter would probably say, if you turn to him, these things won't really make a difference to you. It won't matter. Um, I do think that being stuck in the position of the environment of suffering and trials and tribulation can be really hard at times though. Sometimes it can really get to you and I think a lot of what St. Peter is saying is if you're not anchored in Christ, like all of this is only if you're anchored in Christ, only if you're anchored in Him. If you're anchored in Him, it doesn't matter. Everything is transient. Everything will pass away. And that's what kind of he alludes to at the very end. Um, I'll carry on. Um, and it basically says that the genuineness of your faith would praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Christ. Amazing things are coming out of suffering and trials. You are praising, honoring, and glorying, and giving glory to him. Um, verse 8. Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see, yet believing you rejoice with joy, and express one full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Basically, St. Peter is saying, I have seen, you have not seen. And you know what? You love him, even though you haven't seen, you're going to have more inexpressible joy. You're going to have inexpressible joy. Joy is already inexpressible. It might, you're going to have even more than that. Um, and so I think one really lovely contemplation I was listening to about this, the priest in the sermon was saying, how is this possible? Like, how can you have inexpressible joy? How are we practically going to go about this? Like, 
I don't know, do I just suck it up, do I just do this? And his proposal was this. He said, I propose today that maybe we offer our trial, suffering, tribulation, insert whatever it is, give that to God. Give that to God. Lord, what can I offer you? Every time this hurts, we offer this to you, O Lord. Every time I struggle, I turn to you, I speak to you, I pray to you, I tell you how I'm honestly and truly struggling with this. But I'll give it to you, Lord. I'm not going to take this on board. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be me getting personally cut and trying to defend myself. I think often we get a bit worked up like that. Like, no, like I need to show him, or I need to show her. It's not right. It's a wrong idea. They don't know Christianity, or they're, you know, giving me falsely accusing me, the wrongdoing me, I'm facing all these struggles at work and I'm being labelled as, I don't know, this and that and this and that, A, B and C, or you know, these girls are judging me for this and I look like this, but you know, I'm not I'm not like that. I'm actually like this type of person or you know, the guys keep dogging me for whatever reason. Like no, like hold oh, this question's okay. So persecuted in your head, you said it's kind of like, like hold on, how's it so different? Can you elaborate? I see. So maybe so you're, you said persecution is more of like a particular environment, whereas trial tribulation is something that I'm personally struggling with. I take it day to day wherever I go. I'm going to be honest. I think it's been lumped up as one, but I don't. Um, I haven't. Like I think most of the contemplations and sermons, I guess, have kind of seen it as lumped up as sort of like I'm. Bag of badness, almost, or struggle. Yeah, what do you think? Well, what, I'm happy to. Open it up. I think that's very true. I think, I think sometimes we struggle with things, we hurt, and I don't think we know how to handle hurt, and it hurts other people. Yeah, and sometimes hurt people hurt Yeah. Um, and I think everyone is overall in this journey. Um, in one, like one sort of, I think, church father is basically said that we're all together, trying, we're all hurt, and we're all trying to help each other who are hurt, trying to get to him who is the only healer for us. And he's the only one that can actually heal us. So I definitely agree with you. I think a lot of the time, sometimes it could be thing, things that are self-induced. Sometimes we are, we dwell on things and we are in toxic habits um, or routines that, and we just can't break it. And so we complain, yet we're the ones that are self-inducing it. 
Um, but I also think that, you know, that's a thing that we bear other people's struggles as well and they bear our struggles as well. Yeah. Um, in terms of, Pierre, back to your question, I'm not sure. I think, I presume, this is probably a general letter that's written to everyone and I think the message is kind of for everyone. I think in certain circumstances there probably is a more like one-to-one um, -one sort of what is more applicable, what is to endure. Because obviously there are some environments where if it, it can be so tough to just handle and to just say give it to God sometimes like you need to distance yourself like out of those environments or sometimes there needs to be another action with it and I think that should probably be taken in conjunction with like a um, spiritual leader or confession father or someone who would be probably involved in understanding of the various like struggles that, that could be faced um, you don't know even the ones that like you've labeled as for example a trial maybe having someone there to help with that maybe it's that trial which seems indefinite could maybe only be like a few days or it could be a few weeks as opposed to a few years or decades or whatever it may be, a lifetime of it. And handling that, having someone who's got maybe that spiritual mentorship can help guide how to handle that as well, I think. Um, I know that doesn't answer your question. But okay, sure. Thanks. Yeah, go for it. I think I would probably argue St. Peter is trying to ground us with the reality of the matter. And the reality is that there is hope. Because Christ has risen, Christ has died for us, Christ has given us salvation, and we do have hope. And I think it's very easy to forget that and to be confused by that. One lovely analogy is that... Um, uh, this priest had labelled life with different sort of... Um, imagine going... He said life was like... He likened life to a, a, a store that you went to. And in that store, all the price tags of all the items were modelled up and mixed up. So you had, for example, chewing gum, $1,000. And then you had this really precious diamond as like five bucks. And the priest had basically said that that's what the devil does to you and I with life. We value Christ's death as almost nothing. And there are other things like image, ego, whatever it is. We value that like it's the world and we would break our back for it. We are happy to sacrifice relationships, friendships. We're happy to become different human beings different creatures to get to that and so I think St. Peter in this book is trying to ground us with the reality of the situation Christ has died for you suffering 
is temporary. It's not as extravagant as you think it is. It will be in that little period, but it's transient. There is more to life. There is more to what you are going to experience than the very moment, and even though it sounds sometimes long, could extend up to years or whatnot, this is all temporary when you take a step back and you look at life as a whole, including eternal life. And I think that's what St. Peter is probably trying to ground us with. Um, getting us to have a perspective of reality. And reality only comes from him because he is our reality. Christ is our reality. If you want to know what life looks like, you look with the eyes of Christ. See as he sees. And that is how you can only appreciate hope, only appreciate that comfort, because you can see that it's only through him that you can get through it, and he's the only one that can help us with it. All right, in the interest of time, I will try to run a bit quicker, um, but always welcome for any comments, questions, queries, whatever. Um, and so I think, uh, just in summary, verse 10 to 12, just talks about how the prophets couldn't see um, what we saw, and they've been praying, wanting salvation, and even the angels have been praying about it, but you and I are actually living it. And so St. Peter's kind of like, look how incredible what your life is. Salvation is at our fingertips. It's right here, here and now for us. Okay. Um, and so verse 13, a lot of the theory was 6 to 12. 13 is more like, okay, I've equipped you with all the information. Now what? It's action time. And St. Peter now calls us to action in verse 13 onwards to the end of the chapter. To the point where he even says, Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind. Now, I had never had an idea of what girds up, you know, the loins of your mind means and you know, that kind of stuff. I'm going to be honest. And so, the image it was likened to, it was like... Um, Imagine a priest with a galabeya, or someone wearing a galabeya doesn't have to be a priest, trying to, trying to run. And you really struggle, right? You can imagine. Um, there's some PKs in the audience, they might know, you know, if their dad was running, how that would have been. And so, what this image is, putting a belt on and lifting up the part of the galabeya, like that tunic, the long tunic that people would wear, and almost making, I guess, in layman's terms, like bringing up the, to like, I can't say it, I'm going to mess up, alright? I'm going to mess up. But basically like a, a skirt almost, okay? And so you gird up the, your loins, so basically it's another way of saying preparing yourself. Get ready. It's not like, you know, if you're going to run, you need to be ready. And so St. Peter here is saying, I want you guys to gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready. All right? Things are going to go down. Okay? Did you want to say something? That's a much nicer way of saying it. Thank you for that. <laughs> That's a much nicer way. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so he says, be sober, rest, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is brought to you by the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, um, which basically is another way of saying, I don't want you to be ignorant children. 
I want you to be children, use their characteristics, but of obedience. I want you to be obedient. Listen, hear. There's so much richness to come here. And what does he want us to do as obedient children? To basically be holy, for I am holy. And that's a reference from Leviticus 11.44. Um, and it's basically where it says, I am I'm the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Remember how we said that the, the, you know, the, the blacksmith or the, or, the, or, the, or the one who's making silver, when does he know that, when he or she knows that the steel is ready? It's when it reflects him. And so he, Christ, as the person who is you know, um, making us as steel, wants our image to look like him. Sorry, yeah. Wants our image to look like him, to reflect him, to be holy as he is holy. That is what Christ wants for us, to reflect him. Um, and so we'll carry on. Verse 18, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. And so God was there from the, from the beginning of the world. God thought of you he wanted to make in the last times he made you um, you were a very important thing for him it's like really an incredible thing and I, I, I think we don't realize I think a lot of hurt in the world a lot of suffering a lot of pain is because we don't acknowledge that God loves us the way that he does I think we sometimes don't let God love us. Like I think if we really knew how much God loved us, I think we would be living very different lives. Because it, it's it's actually incredible. Like it it's a bottomless pit, but even then that's not even a fair justification. And I think if we only we knew we would be like a lot of the hurt, the pain, not to detract from the hurt and the pain, because those things are real and important to feel in a way almost. It's a natural response. But I think our response following that hurt would be very different. Very different. I think we, as St. Peter would want us to be, we would be living very godly lives, just entrusted and anchored in him. Um, and I'll just go to the last part of it. Verse 22 onwards. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, so the truth of what he's been saying, you've been listening to me, you've been obeying through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, this is the response now, you've been listening, you've been obeying, love one another fervently with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, to the word of God which lives and abides for, for, pardon me, forever. And so, He's not saying, hey, I want you to go fight, I want you to go do this, I want you to go do that. You know, they've been persecuting you. No. His response to all of the persecution and love, oh, sorry, all the persecution and, and, and hate and everything, is love one another. Love them who have been persecuting you. Just love. 
And you can't do that unless you have him. Like that, that won't happen. Because it's an unnatural thing. Um, how can you love your enemy? It doesn't make sense to humanly do it. It can only happen through him. Um, and so I'll kind of wrap up with this lovely story. Um, there's a, a beautiful saint um, called Saint Seraphim of Sarov. Some of you guys may know him. He's um, from the Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, he writes about acquiring the Holy Spirit. And so he actually became a monk at the age of 19 um, and lived as a hermit for 25 years. Not talking to anyone. Did his own thing, pretty much. Very strict, imagine. Um, you know, he was fasting strict habits. Uh, you know, initially vegetables. And in the last few years of his life, he was only eating grass. Like, he was very, very, very strict with, with the way that he lived his life, okay? Um, and one lovely, lovely thing about Saint Seraphim is that he was filled with joy. He truly was filled with joy. To the point where anyone he would meet after he, after he was a hermit, you know, um, St. Mary appeared to him and basically said that you need to kind of help out some of the people. And people realized that he would heal them and he had such a big and holy stat, um, status. So people would come from all across the globe trying to get his blessing, as you naturally would with someone who's this holy. And his response was always on his words, Christ is risen. To anyone and everyone. Christ is risen. It wasn't even the right season. Christ is risen, he would say. Always, Christ is risen. It was in Lent, Christ is risen. Like, always, Christ, filled with his joy. Now, there's a story um, that there was actually a gang of thieves who came to him and they beat him up mercilessly with the handle of his own axe, which sounds crazy. Um, and he was pretty much left for dead. Um, months later, the thieves, well, there was, it, was a, it was a time for a trial, and they managed to catch the thieves. And so at the trial of souls or the thieves, he actually started defending them. It was against him, he started defending, he was like, no, no, they're not that bad, they're fine, they're really not that bad. Which is so, like, unnatural, like, what are you doing? Like, these guys almost killed you with your own weapon, like, this is yani, embarrassing, almost. Haram, like, you've been defeated and you're getting hit hard. And his response to all of this is, Christ is risen. To the point where if you actually see an icon of Saint Seraphim, he actually had a problem with his back. Um, he took him around five or six months all, like, to recover. Um, and he's actually in icons in the Eastern Orthodox Church depicted as having a very hunched over back because he never fully recovered. He always had this sort of um, issue with his back, which he lived for all his life. And so one lovely message about St. Seraphim is he had suffering, no doubt. And despite the suffering, he was filled with joy, absolutely filled with joy. He was taken to a He wasn't on earth. Like, he, he, he can't have been on earth and experiencing this joy. Um, and so, in summary, we see that St. Peter here introduces the topic and the idea of hope. He wants to offer encouragement to us. And I think this is something that you and I, who are struggling with trials or tribulations, can learn so much from. Because I think often we, as for example, entering into that storm with different sort of price tags, we too live our life sometimes being influenced by a lot of societal pressures. 
everything in society is trying to change the way that we see things, um, whether it be with, you know, relationships, whether it be through image, whether it be through possessions, whether it be through, you know, style of living, profession, whatever it may be. And these things all, all of a sudden, manage to take preference over Christ and over our religious faith and where we stand with things, over our integrity, over our virtues, and over everything that Christ has told us. And so I think this is a really beautiful message of hope, of Christ telling us that, I know you're struggling. I know that you are going through thick and thin. I know you feel lonely. I know you don't you really feel isolated. You don't, you know, you're being put through a lot of hardship. Give me your hardship. Give me your struggles. Give me your trials. Um, speak to me. Offer to me. I, I challenge all of us today to offer to him all of our trials, our tribulations, our struggles, if I can lump it up as one unit. Um, and let's today try to remember that Christ himself has died for us and he has elected us. We have been elected by him and it's through that and through living this sort of remembering that this is a temporary life that we can go through life joyful just as Saint Seraphim of Sarov was, just as these people, the Jewish Christians who were being persecuted, burned alive, struggles that we may never even imagine, yet they may have also been quite joyful as well. And I pray that God may bless us and we, you know, we can take something to learn from that. And glory be to God for more. Amen. Does anyone have any questions? This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you but will also transform you and your life with Christ.